We ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask your guiding and leading as we examine what you would want us to learn from this section. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 1, we're going to be starting at verse 6. First five uh, verses, we're talking about the deity of Jesus. Uh, the word became flesh and the, and, uh, and the light that came in. And then in, in the middle of this statement about Jesus' deity, John throws this little statement about John the Baptist in there. So we're going to read that. Verse 6. There was a man sent of God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness to the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light, that was the true light that lights every man that lights every man that comes into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were not born which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we're going to look here as John is continuing the story of Jesus. Um, He started out with the fact that Jesus was from the beginning. That was what we covered last week. Uh, that he was the light of the world, that he became, that, that he started out, and that he is life. Then he said, and there was a man sent of God whose name was John. Now this is much as he talks about. Now why is John becoming really important is because John preached that God was coming, the Son of God was coming, and he preached repentance. And for us, as we look at the Old Testament, Repentance was all through the Old Testament, but never really a strong doctrine. All right, uh, David understood you had to repent. You know, in, in uh, uh, Psalm 51, we have that, and many of the Psalms, David talked about the need for repentance. The prophets talked about repentance. You need to repent, but for the Jews, mostly they concentrated on doing the works of the law. They really didn't get much into repentance. They figured if you wanted to be forgiven, you went to the temple, you offered your sacrifice, and you were forgiven. They didn't, even though God talked about repentance all through the Old Testament, it was not a key doctrine for them. John the Baptist comes along and he starts preaching repentance. And all through the New Testament, we see repentance being the theme. Jesus died for our sins and we need to repent or turn back to God and turn away from what we have done. So John is somebody he's mentioning. John was well known. If you remember in the book of Acts, everywhere you read in the book of Acts, when they would meet people, they'd go, whose whose baptism were you baptized unto? And many times it was, well, the only one we know about is John. John preached repentance. We were baptized under the teachings of repentance, and then they would be taught the teachings of Jesus and they would be baptized in the name of Jesus. And the fact that he did go for repentance, but he added to it that he was the light of the world. He was the one that brought the salvation to them. So he's talking about John. And it says, The same was a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. So this refers back to the first part we talked about. Jesus said, I am the light. Or... You know, John saying he was the light of the world. Uh, light brings in truth and understanding. 
this is one of the things that when you study the word light in the, in the Bible, oftentimes the word for light literally means to bring doctrine and the light of God into your life. It, and because it's very interesting, when I was younger, I used to try to figure out all the Psalms that kind of were worshiping light. You know, you look at them going, wow, well, do these people worship the light instead of God? And then I started realizing that light had multiple definitions to them. One of them was doctrine and understanding. And so we have this going on and he says, he bore witness to the light. Jesus was going to come. The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, as it tells us in, uh, in Luke and, and, and uh, Matthew. Jesus came to be our uh, redeemer, our kinsman redeemer. And this is very important for us to understand. He came so that we could be saved. All right. Before that, everybody was looking at all the offerings that the Jews did pointed to Jesus. And we've done various studies on the pointing of Jesus to the ver of all the offerings. And Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system on the cross. He was our propitiation, which is a word we don't use very much, but you know, unless you're a Christian. And the propitiation means that he satisfied all the anger and punishment that God wanted to des that we deserved. And this is very important for us to understand. He took all, all of our punishment, all of us. And this is why people have trouble sometimes when they don't understand that once you're saved, you're saved. All right. When I get saved, I don't get forgiven of all the sins I have done up to that point. I get forgiven of all my sins because Jesus is the one who paid for all of sin. All we do is accept that gift that he provides to us and we at that point will want to serve him because the Holy Spirit lives in us, but we're still not going to be perfect. And then there are denominations out there that say, once you're saved, you're perfect. Now, I don't know how they maintain that illusion in their minds uh, because I have never met a perfect Christian. I have been walking with God for a long time and I am far from perfect and I would be in trouble if I had that doctrine in my mind because I'd have to go, did I really get saved? Am I really saved because I have problems with sin? Now, but I do know that when I sin, the Holy Spirit is right there saying, uh, you've done wrong, you've done wrong, get, get right with God get, and confess your sins. And this is where we come into when people say, well, you can lose your salvation. Well, if you can sin without having any conviction by the Holy Spirit, you're not saved in the first place. Because I have not met a true Christian who didn't, have a problem with sin. Now you can keep repeating the sin and kind of blunt that conviction, but you still know that it's wrong. When I do wrong, I know that it's wrong. It doesn't matter how many times I do it, I know that what I'm doing is wrong and usually know it before I commit the sin. The Holy Spirit is right there saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. All right, uh, because he is our light. The Word of God brings a light into our life. The Holy Spirit illumines our path and starts saying, this is not what you're supposed to do. All right? Um, and the true light that he is, he bears witness to it that all men through him, the light, not John the Baptist, but the light, might believe. Now, 
again, this word for believe is very important in the Greek because it literally, it doesn't mean that I believe something happened or I understand the fact. It is to literally be persuaded of something. When I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I am persuaded that he died on the cross. I am persuaded that he went, was buried for three days and I'm persuaded that he rose again in victory and I'm persuaded that he gives me a new eternal life. And this is what's important. It's not, and I've said this over and over, you know, you'll talk to people and I, I went soul winning one time with somebody on the streets and they had this poor teenager backed up against a wall and, and you know, she was trying to get him and he finally said the sinner's prayer, Lord, I'm a sinner. You know, I, I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died for my cross. I asked him to come to my life and save me. We walked away and I go, you know, he's not saved. You go, oh, God will hold him accountable for that prayer. I'm going, no, he said the words you wanted to hear so that you would leave him alone. Is it possible that God could, could get him later on? Yes. It's also possible that he might actually believe he's saved and never, never turn to God in reality because he was pigeonholed and just said something to please somebody. And, you know, there's one of the guys on the radio who, you know, he says, if you said this prayer, you are saved. Well, saying the prayer and believing the prayer is not the same thing. And this is something that is very important for us do we truly believe? You know, and if I truly believe, then there's nobody who's going to be able to tell me that I didn't believe. And he comes into my life and I know he's there. You know, we are promised eternal life. And I, and I love to ask people, what part of eternal do you not believe if you believe you can lose your salvation? If God gives me eternal life and eternal life happens the moment I accept him, I have eternal life from that point on. Otherwise, God lied to me and it's not eternal. If I can lose it, if somebody can take it away from me, it wasn't eternal. Now, it is possible that I did not get saved and did not believe what it is. And we hear all kinds of testimonies where people said, well, I just said the words because that's what they wanted to hear. And then oftentimes get saved decades later, if at all. So here it is. He says, the light of all men through the... Uh, be, that men through him might believe. And again, that is that whole being persuaded of something. And this is very important for us when we're walking with God that we are persuaded. I am absolutely persuaded that God's word is true. And this has helped me through many times when somebody would make a good argument that I couldn't have any answer. I'm going, God's word is true. Now I need to go back and find out why I know that it's true and why it holds up. Uh, when I was in high school, I believed that God created the heavens and the earth, and I spent a lot of time doing my research. And it wasn't as easy back then to get into creation <laughs> answers for creation back in the back in the 70s. Uh, 70s, the books didn't exist very much, and it took a lot of work to find it. Now, you can find all kinds of science about how evolution is false, and creationism is a better scientific answer than evolution. Back then, it was hard. But the first part was, I believed what God said. He created the world in seven days, and then I found the proof to be able to back that up. And this is something that I am very analytical. I always want to have answers for what's going on. Yes, I can start with God said it. But I have looked at people over the years who said, you know, I've had people very old say, well, God said it, I believe it. Okay, that's a really good starting place, but why? I don't know, God said it. I'm going, wow, you have a lot more faith than I do, because I don't. I'll be honest with you, I have a lot of faith, but I don't have that much faith just to believe it because. Uh, 
you know, I feel sorry for Thomas on the, you know, when Jesus appeared to them in the upper room, you know, because I would have been Thomas. I really would have been. You know, uh, you know, guys, I saw him die on the cross. I saw him buried. I don't know what drugs you were smoking last night, but, uh, you, know, you, you know, or how you saw him, because uh, I know what my eyes saw. And, of course, when he saw him, he, you know, people will make a big deal. Jesus said, here are my hands and here are my feet. You know, put your fingers in my hands. It doesn't say that Thomas did. It says as soon as Thomas saw him, he, he, he bowed down and worshipped. You know, it doesn't say that he actually did what he said he had to do to believe. And I don't know. He might have. He might not have. But it doesn't tell us that he did. It just said he saw him and, and was broken. And so... But, and then Jesus said, blessed are those that believe without seeing. You know, Thomas, you saw, you saw and you believe. But you know, the same problem is the other 10 disciples had seen Jesus as well. So they didn't have any special, special place over Thomas. They saw him and they believed. Uh, the ones he's really talking about is us. We don't get to see him. We have to take the witness of all those who said they saw him. Now, we've gone through the various things showing that he did rise again and, and, and all the various proofs of that. But again, faith. Uh, verse 8 says that he was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. So again, he's reiterating, John was not the light. He told people the Messiah was coming. And you remember that when, he, when John was interviewed by the Pharisees, going, are you the Messiah? He goes, no, I'm the one that is telling you the preparing the pre preparing the road <laughs> for the messiah and he told his disciples when they were going he's getting all this increase he goes he must increase i must decrease because up on that point everybody was coming out remember the statement for john was everybody was headed out to the river where he was at to hear his hear his words and be baptized now he was he was the up-and-comer you know, he was the great prophet uh, before Jesus came. And John was the prophet at the beginning of the New Testament. And remember, the last prophet that had anything written in the Bible before John was Micah, about 400 years before Jesus came. Now, there are many people, and I'm not one of them, that say, well, God did not speak for 400 years. I think they're full of it. <laughs> Now, was there anybody that wrote a book of the Bible in that 400 years? No. But I do not believe that God was 100% silent and there was no, nobody talking for God, nobody preaching for God. Because if we wanted to believe that, we could look at the, of the dark ages where there was no real strong movement of the church, but there was a lot of under, undercurrents. The further and further the Catholic Church got away from the Bible, the more there was an undercurrent of churches and people teaching the Bible all right it's always been there God always has a remnant there's always people that are following him all right so I do not believe that there was nobody ever in the 400 years that talked about God all right there was nobody that wrote a book there was nobody that was really historical but I'm sure there were little pastors all over the place <laughs> prophets pastors whatever you want to call them preaching God's word teaching truth all right, John comes along and he makes a big name for himself. You know, people are swarming to him to be baptized. 
So much so that they covered all of the known world at that time as they'd be baptized into repentance that there's a Messiah coming. And they moved all around the, all around the globe. Uh, we find all through Acts, you find them going up through Asia Minor and they keep finding people that are following John, following the teachings of John. What impact he has. And you can imagine how hard of an impact it was for him. He did not have the internet. He did not have radio. He did not have TV. He, to hear his message, you actually had to go to Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem, to see him. And yet, his message spread all through the Asia Minor, Asia Minor, and they were hearing his message of repentance and were responding to that repentance message. Uh, and when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And he goes, this is the one that I told you. And he goes, I, and you know, if you remember the story of John the Baptist baptizing him, he's going, uh, I don't, I'm not even worthy to undo his shoe, his sandal. I'm, not a, I'm, I'm unworthy of him at all. And remember, that's what he told Jesus. He goes, I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus said, just go ahead and baptize me. Let it be done. But John understood his position in what was going on. And you know, this is something that is very important and I've seen it over and over in churches. People forget that God is the one who's important. You know, and I've had people go, well, this is my ministry. No, it's God's ministry that you're allowed to, to minister in. And you know, one thing I have found out over the years is when God takes somebody out of a particular place, he always replaces them with one or two or three or four people and more gets done when that person is taken out of the way because God steps in. And I've seen it over and over again. You know, I'm, I love being the pastor of this church, but you know, if God takes me out of this church, he'll put somebody else in here that can do as good or better job than I do. You know, and probably better. That's been my experience. Whoever gets replaced does a better job uh, or a different job, all right? Taken in a different direction, but what God wants done. So we look at John here and he says, he bore witness to that light. Uh, he said it was not him. He says in verse nine, that was the true light which lights every man that comes into the world. The fall of man in the Garden of Eden brought in darkness into our life. Remember what God told Adam, he said, you can eat of any tree of the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that day you will die. Now, people will then point out, well, people, they didn't die. They didn't, they didn't die physically, and that's correct. They did not die. They started dying at that point, but they did die in their spiritual relationship with God. Before that point in time, every night they talked with God in the Garden of Eden. After that time, we don't see them talking to him all the time. There seems to be some indication that God talked to them but not in that intimate way that he had talked. They were broken, the relationship was broken. He took and he offered the sacrifice for them so they could be clothed. Remember, they, they made uh, clothes out of the fig leaves. And God says that's not good enough and he gave them skins for animals, uh, from animals. I do not believe God did a special creation for the animals, for those skins, I believe God showed them the cost of sin was death and blood. And then 
uh, you know, because what's happened ever since is sacrificial system had happened from that point on. You see Cain and, e Cain and Abel <laughs> offering sacrifice. Cain went out and said, well, I don't, I don't want to offer this, the uh, sheep. I'm going to offer the works of my hands. And he brought in fruits and grains to God. And God says, no, I'm not accepting that. Abel brought the gift of blood, just as was shown to Adam and Eve. And so we see all this going on. And this is John saying, the true light that lights every person. Jesus is that true life. And if you can remember when you first got saved, all of a sudden the light comes on. You understand God's word. You start seeing things totally different. Now we learn over time and get, get it clean, you know, worked on. But our eyes were opened up. Our, we saw what was going on in a very deep way. And light came into our life. And he says he was testifying that Jesus was that light. And so here we're still looking at John building the case that Jesus is divine. He is God. All right. Now remember that he's talking to a world because he, we told you that he's writing to the world, not just to the Jews. The Jews understood one God. Their problem was that God would have a son and send him to die for us and would be equal to God and there would still only be one God even though the Hebrew language does indicate that very thing when it talks about El Elohim, when it talks about God in the very first verse, it says, let us create man in our own image. The word in that is used is the one that indicates a one God with talking in a multi multitude of people. So we have the Trinity shown right from there, let us. He's not talking to the angels. He's talking to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit saying, let us make man in our own image. And man is made in that image. Now, John is teaching to, re reaching out to a bunch of Romans and Greeks. Now, if any of you remember anything about Rome and Greek, they had a whole pantheon of gods with all those mythological stories that go behind them. You have Zeus and, and Mercury and, and uh, Venus and all these other gods, and I'm probably mixing up the Greek and the Roman gods because I don't remember them off the top of my head, but... We have all those different gods that they believed in. And if you've ever read the mythologies, you see them basically being strong, strong people. They have all the anger and bitterness of, of human beings, the jealousies, the, the, the pride, and all they do is have these magical powers that go along with it, cause storms, cause problems. You know, and this is the problem that we have out there with the other gods. That they're just humans that are very powerful. Whereas in Christianity and Judaism, we have a God who transcends all of those things, who has personality, who has righteousness, but he's not jealous of anything he created because he is the only one with that power. You know, and we've got to understand who God is. And we're not going to cover all of that tonight, but he is all powerful. He is everywhere present. He is he knows all things. There's nothing that he learns. And that alone is crazy. You know, we, we learn all the time, and yet God says, I know everything. I know the beginning from the end. I know everything. And I've struggled with trying to figure that out. How could, G, how could God know what it was like to be crucified and be separated from himself when it had never happened in all of eternity, and yet he had to know it because he's omniscient? <laughs> 
And it's like, okay, God, I don't, you know, there's certain things I look at and go, God, I can't even begin to understand these things. The idea that he created man knowing that man was going to sin and knowing that it was going to cost him his life to be able to redeem us. And he still did it. That's bizarre to me. Would I have done that? Probably not. Going, why do I want to get hurt so that I can create these people that are going to hurt me and then I'm going to die for them so they can be redeemed? You know, just mind-boggling. You know, uh, the whole idea of a trinity. You know, and I know the Bible teaches the trinity, and I've gone at various times through every verse you know, in, a, in a message about the trinity. And I usually always started out, we're going to talk about the trinity, we're going to show that the Bible talks about the trinity, and you're not going to understand it any better when we're done than when we started. Because it is something we can't comprehend. We always break it down into three people that happen to be one. Well, okay, yes and no, because they're one. And one is more important than the three. And because a lot of people will go, well, they represent themselves in three different ways. No, then, then you've got a kind of schizophrenic God who's not three, three, but he's uh, one day he's the Father, one day he's the Son, one day he's the Holy Spirit. That is not the Trinity. He is all three, and they are one. And we can show all kinds of examples of the Trinity in, in his thought process. People like to point to the egg. They like to point to human beings. They were body, soul, and spirit. They like to point to this, this standard, uh, the three ways that matter is expressed into gas, liquid, and solid. All of those follow short, though, because each one of those examples either don't, aren't one. The egg is one, but if you break the egg, you no longer have one. You have, can have the three parts, and you can't put it back together again. You can have water, solid, or gas, but you can't have all three at one time. You can have a certain place where you can have two at one time. Uh, so there's all the things. Every time we look at anything for the Trinity, it falls apart because it is very hard to understand. And these are things that the gospel writers struggled with. How do we express this? And you know, people go, well, if you can't understand it, so does that bother you? And I tell you, no, it doesn't bother me at all. I am glad that there are things that cannot be understood in the scriptures. Because if I could understand everything in the scriptures, then I'm God. And you don't want me being God. <laughs> and I'm not smart enough to be God. I can't even understand a lot of what he puts in. And, and I've read a lot of smart people that don't understand it any better. So we need to understand that there are things in Scripture that we have trouble understanding. All right? Uh, and you know what? God has no trouble understanding it. When we get to heaven, maybe he'll expose it to us and tell us why or how come or how it all fit together. But... I'm just going to take some of things by faith because they're not something I can completely understand. I'll let him shine the light on it, understand it a little bit better, know what I believe, and this is what's important, know what you believe and why. All right? I believe in the Trinity. Can I understand the Trinity? Nope. Do I know the Trinity is shown in the Bible? Yes, we've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One of the great pictures of that is when Jesus was baptized. He comes out of the water, the Spirit came down, down upon him, and then God spoke from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. All three of them are shown in, in separate instances and yet one. And we don't fully understand it. We can't understand it. Um, all right. Verses, uh, where am I at? Nine. 
That was the true light that lights every man that comes into the world. I read that. He, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Now, this is going to be something very interesting. Jesus came to be a man, and the world did not understand him. Not only did the world not understand him, but his own people, the Jews, who had all the prophecies to be able to understand him, did not accept him. Why did they not accept him? Primarily because they were looking for a mighty warrior king who was going to deliver them. And he came as a baby. He came as a quiet, soft-spoken man that spoke truth. I want to be careful even when I say that. On two occasions, he drove the money changers and, and salespeople out of the temple. You know, that was not being very nice and quiet, especially when the temple had its own uh, uh, soldiers. You know, he goes in with a whip, and they didn't do a thing. He drives out the people, the money changers, and the and the and the people selling things, and drives them out of the temple. And the soldiers did not do a thing. You know, popularity, worried about, and the biggest thing was they were always worried about how the people were going to react. Because the people that Jesus ministered to on a daily basis loved him. He taught them mercy. He taught them grace. He went in and talked to the people that the scribes and Pharisees and the priests would never talk to. You know, and we need to be careful as Christians that we don't get into a Pharisaical attitude. You know, Jesus would talk to the prostitutes. He would talk to the widows. He talked to the orphans. He talked to you know, all the people that nobody else wanted to have anything to do with. The scribes and Pharisees, if you weren't good enough, you weren't even allowed to be around them. They would look at you and say, nope, <laughs> uh, you're a sinner. Can't be around me. Somehow they forgot that they were sinners. Uh, but, or, or they looked down and said, your sin is so much worse than mine that I'm not, I, can't, I can't afford to be around you. Now, before we get too judgmental, oftentimes Christians do that with people. Now, you were just, you know, huh, I don't know. You know, your lifestyle is just way, way off. I cannot accept it. The thing we want to note, and it's very important, Jesus never accepted their lifestyle, but he loved the individual. And this leads us to the statement that we hear a lot. We are to love the sinner and hate the sin. Now, that is not the easiest thing in the world to do, especially when we get a worldview that is out there. The world looks at, at people and they are what they do. All right? You are a thief. You are a murderer. You are, you know, you are an adulterer. You are, you know, whatever. They do not separate the person from what they do. And because they cannot separate the person from what they do, they have trouble. When we say we're to love the, the sinner and hate the sin, they're going, there's no such thing. You can't, you can't separate the two. And God says, no, you've got a person who's created who is sinning. And all of us sin, so we could be able to understand that because we always want people to separate ours. It doesn't matter. Even the world wants you to separate. You know, I do these things, but that's not who I am. You know, I want you to see who I am. And yet they won't see the rest of the world that way. And we need to be careful. When we look at people, what do we see? Do we see a soul that needs to know God? Or do we see the actions of that person? Now, this can work in the other direction because there's times when you look at somebody and go, look how good that person is. 
they may or may not know God at all, but they may have their life put together and be, quote unquote, a good person. You get a philanthropist who gives lots of money at problems, but doesn't really know God. You know, but people go, whoa, look how good they are. Look at all the good they are doing. Well, yeah, they're doing a lot of good, but they're not doing it for the right reasons. All right? Or we, we get in there where we think, well, I got to do enough good to please God, even if we're saved. Even if we understand that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. How many times do we think that, well, I got to do enough good so that God will look at me favorably? Yeah, very dangerous ways of thinking. Who are we? We are either in Christ or not in Christ. When we get saved, we are placed in Christ Jesus, in his righteousness. When God the Father looks at us, what does he see? He sees Jesus Christ. If he didn't, we'd be in trouble. There's no way we can be good enough to please him. Isaiah says that all our righteousnesses are filthy rags. And when people are not saved, when they stand at the white throne judgment of God, they're going to be standing in filthy rags trying to tell God that they deserve to go to heaven. Not their sin. Jesus paid for that. They're going to be standing in the filthy rags of their own righteousness. Now, some people will have a lot more filthy rags than others, but they're still standing there in filthy rags to stand before the God of the heavens, the courtroom of heaven, and say, I deserve to come to heaven because I've done all these good works. You know, and this is going to be a serious issue for them. Because I can picture it now. They're going, God, I just want you to look at all the good as they look down and see what they're clothed in. Uh, wow, I'm here in filthy rags, and this is my good stuff? These are my good clothes? <laughs> I'm not wearing the, the dirty, stinky garments that I thought I was you know, not going to be pleased with. I'm wearing the good stuff? Yeah. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. We, on the other hand, will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which is the most beautiful garment that we could stand before God in, and he will reward what we let him do through us. The light of the world. He is that light that brings into us. Uh, and verse 11 says, He came to his own, and his own received him not. This is very interesting because the Jews had all of the prophecies of the Messiah. They knew the Messiah was coming. And yet, when he came, they did not recognize him. You know, and I've always wondered, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees, what did they always say of Jesus? They called him Jesus of Nazareth. So they never really believed that he was the Messiah. Why? Because they knew where the Messiah was to be born. They knew that he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And yet, they never looked at Jesus of being Jesus of Bethlehem, which he was, because he didn't spend long time in Bethlehem. Remember, he was born in Bethlehem. At about a year to two years old, he went in from Bethlehem, went to Egypt. We don't know exactly how long he spent in Egypt. And then they were called out of Egypt, and they moved back to Nazareth, which is where Mary and Joseph were before they went to Bethlehem for the birth of Jesus. So he was known as Jesus of Nazareth, the Nazarene. You know, that's how they knew him. If they had just done a little bit of research, they might have been impressed. This is the one that was born, and are saying, of a virgin in Bethlehem. And that would have meant a whole lot to them. 
But God worked it out that they could not look and walk by sight. It took faith. Now, the other thing was that there was a time when they knew that the uh, the time of Daniel, the 69 weeks of Daniel, that the Messiah was coming. They didn't recognize that. And Jesus says, you know the times and the seasons. Why aren't you looking? You know, we need to be very careful because sometimes we know things, but we don't necessarily believe them. Yes, Joseph of Arimathea knew it, Nicodemus knew it. There were several of the scribes and Pharisees that knew. Did they know he came from Bethlehem? I don't know. But they understood that he was the Messiah that he claimed to be. Now, how it was proved, how they understood, we don't know. But they were also in the minority of that group. Of that group. All right? And they were afraid. Many of them were very much afraid because they would lose the status that they had. So they technically had a God of their status rather than believing in Jesus. But, you know, again, we don't want to be too picky on that because how many of us will say, I need my job, I need my status, I need this, I need that, rather than stand for God. So I'm not criticizing them. The, the Nicodemus came at night to talk to Jesus. And he was a teacher of teacher of teachers in, in Israel. And he came at night because he did not want others to know that he was seeking a truth that he did not understand. And we, there's no indication in that first story in John 3 that we'll get to that he became saved, but he is one that was, went in and buried him. So at, at some point he stood up and said, I am his follower. All right? But during those years, what did he say? What didn't he say? We have no recording. You know, did he stand up a little bit in the meetings or not? You know, he was a teacher of teachers. He probably had influence. And yet he wasn't going to take that influence and jeopardize it. And this is something for all of us. Are we willing to stand for Jesus no matter what the cost? Now, for us in America, the answer for most American Christians is probably no. Because we have not faced much tribulation. Now, there's a handful of people that are standing up for him. But you know, in most of the world, you will die for being a Christian or potential. Especially in the Middle, Middle East, most of Africa, a lot of Asia. If you stand up for God, you may die within just a couple of years. Yeah. And we in America are spoiled because we don't have persecution. And it does affect us. A lot of times we will say, well, I'm not sure I want to, to give up what I have. And we need to be able to understand, are we going to stand for God or not? And I think it's getting more and more. As we're seeing the end days approaching, and we're seeing more and more evil approaching, it's time for us to be a light, which may mean that we will be in prison, lose jobs, maybe even lose our life at some point. But we are getting to this point, and we're seeing it in our, in our world. Good is being called evil. Evil is being called good. Uh, how dare you have an idea that there's an absolute truth? You know, and try to impose your truth on everybody, we're going to have all these problems as we go forward. And the light of the world has come in. Are we going to trust that light? Are we going to shine that light? Because I, the one good news about the world getting dark is the light of God shines brighter. You know, if you're even a little bit walking for God, your light is going to shine. 
And this is going to be an issue as we go forward. As things get darker and darker before the rapture, our light will shine. And we're not to hide it. We're to let it go very bright. And these countries where people die for their faith, it's an amazing thing when you read about them. Do, do they sit around huddled in their rooms worried about getting caught? No, most of them out there preaching the gospel and teaching about Jesus, witnessing to everybody. And then they get arrested. But they don't shut up because they know the light. They know that he is in their life. He has brought peace. And this is the greatest promise I think we have. In Philippians, it tells us that he gives us a peace that passes understanding. Now, I have a peace that passes understanding. There are times in my life when there is absolutely no need to be peaceful, and yet I know God's in control, and there's a peace. Now, am I happy about everything that happens? No. Am I excited about some of what happens? No. But when I know that God is in charge, I can be at peace. And this is the beauty of having a God that is sovereign, that knows all things, who has promised that all things work together for good for those who love God and called according to his purpose, who says, I know the beginning from the end. No matter what comes my way, God is in control. Even from when I, from my human perspective, look and say, God, you have lost all control. I don't even understand what you're doing. God has still not lost control. From my limited perspective, it may look like he's lost control, but he has not lost control. You know, we, we study in Job on, on Sunday night. You know, Job, from his perspective, looked up and said, God, you have lost all your marbles. I have lost everything, and I don't deserve it. Now, and that's not quite the way he said it. He was always in poetic, but, you know, he was at that point saying, God, I don't understand why any of this is happening. You know, have you, have you lost control? We've all probably been there at some point in our life where we think God has lost control. But, you know, when we fully understand the Bible, that should not last very long. We go back and say, God, I may not understand it, but you are God. I'm going to trust in you. And this is the most important thing we can do. God is God. He is sovereign. He is going to do what he wants to do with us. And this is the very interesting thing because this is where we, you know, we're talking a little bit before, you know, before service, you know, how do I have a free will and yet God gets what he wants done all the time? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea how I can make any decision and yet God is in charge. You know, uh, there are those who, you know, and I used to be this way when I first said God just knew my decision and he made all of his plans based on my decisions. What a stupid idea that is. You know, God is God. He does what he wants, not responding to what I want. Now, he will take what I do and use it. All things work together for good, and not just the things I do his way, but all things. Even when I totally mess up and I do everything possible wrong, God says I still will make something good. That takes God. That takes God to be able to make that happen. And I don't understand it. I don't understand how God can take everything that I mess up and make it good. Now, the good news is he created everything from nothing. So he can, he can fix anything that I do, fix anything you do, uh, because he is God. He is all-powerful and can make these things happen. But verse 12 says, But as many as receive him... To them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. 
power. Now this particular word for power is excusia, excusia, which is the power of choice, liberty. Now this is something that is hard for us to understand. God gives us liberty to make choices. Why? I have no idea. But by the same token, he's sovereign, so he's going to be in control of everything. One of the things that I have never been able to put together is how he can be sovereign, totally sovereign, and I can have liberty, and he still gets his way. <laughs> uh, if anybody can figure that out, let me know. I've been wrestling with it for about 50 years. <laughs> uh, all I know is that he's sovereign. Now, I understand to a degree because I have been manager at various places, and I have oftentimes gotten people to do what I wanted them to do and have them think it was their decision. So I kind of understand how it can happen. God would be great at it. I, I was only so good at it. But, but, you know, we're going to do what God wants us to do. And how many times have you fought with God? You know, I've, I've had that experience fighting with God. I'm very hard-headed. He's had to get a two-by-four out more than once. And I sometimes say a four-by-four. Four. He's taken, had to beat me quite hard. But he gets his way eventually because he's going to say, this is what you're going to do. No, I'm not going to do it. Okay, smack. Yeah, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> you know, we look at Balaam. If you know the story about Balaam, Balaam's called to, to curse Israel. And he says, he went to God and God says, no, you're not going to curse them. No, you're not going to curse them. Third time, he says, if they ask you again, go with them. And the next thing we're reading, he's going with them. They never asked. And what happens is, on that road, his donkey keeps going off the road. Three times. The third time, well, the third time he didn't go off the road because they were in a narrow place and the donkey just laid down. And he started beating the donkey. And the donkey, you know, I've never really understood this. Donkey started speaking to him. And he goes, haven't I always been a good donkey? Why are you beating me? Because you're an obstinate, you know, obstinate and you're not behaving. And then the angel speaks. The angel speaks. Balaam was set on a path and God says, no, I am going to come before you. Saul of Tarsus, killing Christians, on his way to Damascus to kill Christians. And what happens? He sees the bright light, knocks him off his horse, and God starts talking to him. And says, I've got a plan for you. Who are you? Well, I'm Jesus, whom you're, whom you're persecuting. Could Paul or Saul of, at that time said, no, I'm not going to follow you? No. He had a free will. He could have said no. Nobody in their right mind would have said no. He's knocked him off his horse and blinded him. There's no, there's no way he was going to say no. God got his way. Got his way with Balaam. There are times when God says, I am going to get my way, even if I force it upon you, to make a decision for me. Other times, hopefully, we we're better off and not arguing with him and don't have to be pounded over the head. And we just say, yes, God, I'm going to obey. I'm a stubborn person. It's taken me many, many decades to learn to listen to God most of the time. And I am better. I am better than I used to be. But not perfect either. God will make us do, if it comes down to it, and that's what the example of Balaam and, and Saul, he will make us, if it's really that important to him, he'll make us. He also, this has been something I've seen, he will put roadblocks in our path that we have to go a certain direction which is the way he wants us to go and we get where he wants us to go and realize wow I just did what God wants me to do and I had no real intention to do it so how that works I don't know how he does it I don't know but he does get it in and I've had many times when 
little roadblocks are in my way and I just keep going a certain direction and then I realize I'm where God wanted me to be. All right. Other times I've had to make good decisions. Other times I've made bad decisions and had to face the consequences. There's always consequences for making the wrong decision. God's still going to get us where he wants us, but do we do it without the bad consequences or do we take the woodshed and get spanked all the time and have consequences for making the right decision? Ideally, we should do it without the woodshed. (laughs) Unfortunately, most of us are stubborn and need the woodshed experience to get where we're supposed to, where he's wanting to put us. Like I said, I'm getting better. I don't go to the woodshed quite as much or as long (laughs) as I used to. But But he's going to get it his own. And he says he gave them the power to become sons of God. Now, the children of Israel understood that they were his people and that he had declared that he had married Israel, that they were his bride, but they still never felt that intimacy that God was bringing in. Jesus brought in an entire intimacy with God. Remember when he said, you pray, he says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. The the Jews did not think of Jesus as their father. He was the big meanie that you had to offer sacrifices to and if you didn't please him was going to to get you into trouble but they didn't look at him as father now we as christians may go too far the other direction we tend to always look at him as father and not as god so there's a balance that we have to have in there yes he is father but yes he's also god and i've heard people say some very crazy prayers you know praying to their father you know, uh, and forgetting that he's God. He expects us to be obedient. He expects righteousness. He expects holiness from us. But he also understands that we are children that will not be fully obedient. And I am looking forward to the day when we get raptured and we get glor- or, or die and we get glorified and we have the perfect, perfect uh, body that can worship God and not have this sin nature in us. So I'm looking forward to that day when sin is not part of who we are and we'll be obedient and we'll know things that we don't know now and we'll be able to see things that we don't see because we will see God and who he is and I'm looking forward to that day I'm, I'm I am so excited about the day when sin is not going to be in my way when we look at heaven how can we even picture heaven because everything we look about heaven is tainted by what we see on earth and my sin nature you know, Paul says that God has got rewards for us. You know, I don't know what it means to have rewards in heaven. All I know is I want as many rewards as I can get because of my sin nature. I want them just so I can spend them on myself and say, here's my rewards. But that won't be our motivation in heaven because that's our sin nature that says I want to show off. So what does it mean when we get to heaven? I don't know. You know I can't picture what the Garden of Eden was like a perfect environment with no sin, no death, no diseases, no bad weather, all the things that went on that were totally lost at the fall. And we're going to see all of this, this going on. And these children says they were not born of flesh and blood, but of the will of the Father. Jesus said, God is the one that brought it brought us into his children he desires this relationship with us 
we don't get to plan our children. We barely get to plan them in, real, in, in the physical. I mean, if you don't want children, the easiest way not to have children is not to have sex. Because you know, if you do that, you won't have children. If you do, you may end up with children. You know, most likely end up with children in many cases. But he's saying these are children not because of the will of man by flesh and blood, but because God wills it. The word was made flesh and dwelt among. Uh, oh, it was not born nor of the will of flesh nor the will of man. Yeah, of, yeah. of humankind. Yeah, he's basically just saying that all people were born through God's power, even though we were born in flesh. And well, in this case, he's talking about salvation, second birth. Oh. Second birth, when oh, we become oh, his yeah. children. Oh, okay. All right, not because people desired it, but because oh. God desired it. Right. Born again. And even in this, we have a lot of debate on this one because God says that you cannot get saved unless he gives you the faith to be saved and he gives you the desire to be saved. And this is one of these verses that, that build that up. It says you're, you're a Christian, you're in the family because of God's plan, not your plan. Now, how then do I believe and get saved is another story altogether. And somehow we got to put those together. But God gives us the faith to be able to believe. And so all of this comes into a big problem that we have um, because verse certain, which was born not of, of blood, but by God's decision, all right? He is the one that did it, not by having a long line of, you know, I come from this long line of Christians. You know, I love talking to people and go, well, how, how, what do you think about heaven? How are you going to, well, grandpa was a good, was a pastor. I go, that's wonderful, but what does that have to do with you? Well, dad was a dad was a good man. Well, that's wonderful. But what does it have to do with you? God has no grandchildren. He has children. You, each person has to make their own decision for him, and it's not because dad was a dad was a pastor, grandpa was a pastor, great grandpa was a pastor, great great grandpa was a pastor. That has nothing to do with us being a child of God. It has to be a decision that we make. And in verse 14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This goes back to the very first statement. In the beginning was the word, and the word uh, was, with, was with God, and the word was God. And now it comes down to verse 14, And the word became flesh. He's already determined that the word was God. So now he's saying God became flesh and blood. Now this idea has been all through mythologies that there would be some demigod, half man, half God thing. But in the case of Jesus, and this is one of the things that is strange, he is 100% God and 100% man. Now that to us, if you're a mathematician like I am, it makes no sense. You can't go 100% and 100% and come up with, with anything but 200% or half and half. All right? But he is not half man and half God. He is all God and all man. And we can't comprehend that. It doesn't make any sense. In Greek, he's the, the anthropos, the God-man. The God-man. He is the one and only who is God 100% and 100% man. How we get that done? 
Good luck figuring it takes God. It takes the miracle working of God to make that be a true statement. And because we, anything else doesn't matter. If he was only 50% God and 50% man, then he's some strange half-breed. And he would not be the one that could redeem us. To be our redeemer, he had to be man, holy man. To be the one that lived the life to forgive us, he had to be God. Otherwise, he could not have saved the whole world through his sacrifice. He is 100% both. And like I say, I'm, I love mathematics. It makes, it's the only place where I can say you know, that it doesn't make any sense is this. You know, how can he be 100% and 100%? It should be 50-50. But he is all God, all man. And this is hard. God became flesh. He did not lose being God, but he veiled his divinity in flesh. And this is hard to understand, and he dwelt among us. He dwelt as a human being. For 34 years, he dwelt as a human being, being subject to all the temptations of humanity and not sinning. And all of this that he goes, went through, and it says he is and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten, the primary. This isn't the, the first, is what this word is. Not, not he was the only, literally begotten, but he was the principle. He was first in line with God. All right, this takes us into the deity. We've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and each one takes their place in the, in the, in the relationship of God. Uh, with submission to each other, and with listening. The Father is the one that directs everything. The other two are submitted to the Father to do what he wants, not because he's better than them, but because they have chosen to be submitted. And this is the word for submit in the scriptures is hupotasso, which means to abide under. It's a military term, and it means you are under rank of, with somebody else. And in the military, even to this day, they have a saying, you are to respect the uniform even if you do not respect the man in the uniform. If that person has chevrons on their shoulder or, or, uh, or signi on their, on their shoulder, you recognize that they are the one in charge. Even if they're a total idiot, don't know what they're doing and, and couldn't, couldn't lead their way out of a paper bag, they've got the rank and you respect the rank. No, 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 not in this one. The, I was talking about him being begotten is, means he is principal. He is his first in rank above everything. Uh, but Jesus submitted himself to the Father. And we're seeing that in there. Uh, but this one for begotten is that he is been made, been, uh, he's the principal one, principal one. It was, became flesh that so we could do is see his glory and he says, full of grace and truth. Full in this word, in this case, is complete. He is filled completely, um, lacking nothing. He is filled to the top with grace and mercy. And you know, this is the beautiful thing. When we look at God, or grace and truth in this case, excuse me, God has grace for us. I am so thankful that he's gracious. Because I'd be in trouble if he wasn't gracious. If he gave me what, what I deserved and didn't give me all the blessings that he, want, that he says he's going to give us, 
I'd be in trouble. And so would you. He's full of grace. And I love this truth. All right. Truth is what is true no matter what is being considered. It is the reality of something. Jesus says, I am the reality. And this is the beautiful thing. When we really understand reality, the truth, we can take a stand. Why is Satan so against truth? Because God is truth. And he's doing everything he can to get people to not try to seek truth. Because if we do not have truth as our underpinning of our life, it's a very shaky foundation. Now, and it's very interesting when, when you meet people and they're going, there is no absolute truth. You know, you cannot live with the idea that there is no absolute truth. So they will find all kinds of caveats and try to figure out how you have truth in a world without truth. Yeah, and it's very funny. And I used to love in, in the college asking people to go, there is no absolute truth. And I go, is that, is that absolutely true? And they would look at me like, what? I go, you just made an absolute truth statement that there is no absolute truth. So therefore, your statement has to be false. <laughs> You know, by the way you said it, there has to be truth. And the people who don't believe in truth have a really hard time because truth is around us all the time. And one thing about it is God is not worried about whether we believe truth or not. Truth is truth whether people believe it or not. And they can try hard to say they don't believe in it, but we know that there is truth. Science tells us there's truth. There's scientific truths all over the place, even though we're trying to play with those scientific truths nowadays. Even though we're trying to say that there's no such thing as truth, you can do what you want, be who you want, act the way you want, and there's no consequences, there's still consequences. And people know it when they, in, in reality. And yet, when we follow God's truth, it is so liberating. Because when I am living in truth, I have, I have that peace. I have that truth that God is in charge. I have that truth that he paid for my sins, that there is eternity waiting for me, and that he is in control. And that gives all kinds of comfort. I cannot live, I cannot live and I don't know how they do live in the li world of lies that they want to live in. Whether they believe the lies or not, there's still no foundation under what they believe. And I'm not sure most of them believe their lies in the first place. This is why they end up drinking and, and using drugs and doing crazy things and ending up killing themselves because they understand there must be something firm underneath them. And if they're not going to believe truth, there is nothing firm to stand on. And so we stand on the rock of Jesus and his truth, his light. And that gives us great peace. And as more we understand who he is, the better off we're going to be in that peacefulness and being able to follow him. And we're going to end here, because I went way over our normal time. <laughs> Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we go forward. Help us to see you in all that we do. Help us to understand that you are true, that you get your way, and that you are sovereign. And help us to be willing to bow our knees to your sovereignty. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord.
to be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.